Good morning. Just as a note of explanation why I'm sitting down here recently because we, uh, we tape these things now. Of course, they're all posted. Videos are posted online. I realized I had this really strange habit. And it's this. And I was going, why am I doing that? And I never noticed it before. And I thought, well, who can I ask that's been around me for years? So I looked over at Gerald. I said, Gerald, back at Calvary Chapel in Zanesville, I said, did I always do this? And he went, yep. <laughs> and I went, well, I'm going to sit down there because that's just, that's annoying. <laughs> well, there you go. And now that I'm more comfortable, I'll be preaching longer. So, no, I'm joking. Everybody had a great Christmas. I pray. I know we did. The Lord is good. And uh, what a blessing it's been. Before we get into our text, just to set it up for you. Freedom. I saw a sticker the other day. Freedom's not free. Never has been. Never will be. And even in Christendom, in the gospel, Jesus gave the parable of the mustard seed. And he said that even though it was the smallest of seeds, it was tiny, it grew into a great tree and there would birds would nest in its branches. And those of you who understand hermeneutics and, and symbolism in the Bible, birds always represent sin. And so what Jesus was basically saying in that particular parable was that eventually throughout church history, sin would enter into the church. But we're not to accept it. He was a warning. And we see that from the very beginning of the church. We all know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. As we went through the book of Acts, we saw when the church was really young in its infancy, that sin had already started. One of the earmarks of the last days, Paul tells us in Thessalonians, is that many would depart from the truth. They would leave the truth of the word of God. Some people, you know, have uh, taken that as, as people will just quit going to church. And uh, while that very well may be true, I think for the most part, they'll still go to church. They just don't no longer use the Bible. And we're seeing that happen today. Well, it was no different during the time of Paul. Paul preached, of course, against those things and, of course, cautioned us to stand fast in the liberty wherein Christ has called us because freedom's not free. I mean, you know, when we think about salvation alone, we always tell people, oh, you know, it, 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 it's a free gift of salvation. Well, yeah, it's free to you. But it wasn't free to our Savior. You were bought with a price, it says. And he paid for it with his blood and with what went on on Calvary. And we need to protect that. We need to stand up for that. Because we're coming into a time and an era that's even worse than the time we're going to be reading about. We're going to be starting in the book of Galatians back in our study, and we're going to tie it to our study that we've been 
reading about, of course, uh, with the, the nativity of Christ. So if you will, this morning, open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. And I want to draw your attention this morning to verses 1 through 4. And before we dive into that, let's go to prayer. Father, we love you. And Lord, we're so thankful for all that you do for us and all that you have done for us and all that you want to do for us. So Lord, Father, we come to you. You said if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. And Lord, Father, you give freely and you upbraid not. So Lord, Father, we ask for wisdom that we might understand your word. And as Joshua was, Lord, Father, we ask for the courage to put your word in action in our lives because the enemy is all around, Lord Father, and uh, would try to uh, lead us away from that. So we ask for courage, Lord Father, in, in the face of adversity to stand firm in your word and in the liberty wherein Christ has made us free. We love you so much and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at verse 1 here in Galatians chapter 5. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Wow. Over the last few weeks, like I mentioned before, we've been focused on the nativity, the Advent season, of course, of Jesus Christ, and more specifically on the coming of the Messiah and the anointed one, as the Bible calls him, which was fulfilled, of course, as you know, in the person of Jesus Christ. And we've been drawing from the Gospel of Luke there in chapter 2 has been our main text for the last few weeks. Luke gave us this narrative, which I really love, between Joseph and Mary and the temple priest Simeon, who was the one that God had chosen to issue the right of circumcision to Jesus Christ. And I went to great lengths to explain, you know, Jesus was born, of course, sinless because his father was God. He really had no reason to be circumcised, not for himself anyway. But it's kind of the same way with his baptism. And I, I think we need to be reminded of that sometimes, that all that Jesus did, he did on your behalf. So we enjoy the fruits of what Christ did vicariously. Thus, there are those who believe, and I'll touch on it later, that if you die in Christ without being baptized, that somehow you're lost. Crazy. Nothing could be further from the truth. Why? Because even if I'm not able to do it, Christ has done it for me. He did it for me. He's done all things for me. Thus, I enjoy the privilege of being a child of God because God has done it for me. I don't have to worry about my failures, which I have had plenty, and so have you. 
But God is not holding those things against you. Blessed is the man, happy is the man, David said, to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. And that should make us very happy. So, before we make the connection here to our text, I I, want to draw your attention back to the Gospel of Luke, just for a minute. But this time I'm going to be looking at the five chapters past his nativity, which actually brings us very close to the end of his ministry. Now, as you know, or you should know, the Messiah had a forerunner who was John the Baptist, of course, spoken of in uh, Isaiah chapter 40, and who just so happened to be the cousin of Jesus. So a lot of people brush right over that and not realize that because they were cousins and in the same area, more than likely, they grew up together. So though we're not really given any account of that interaction when they were children, we're not told about that. Uh, all, all is mentioned is what went on later in, that, in his life. I think it's important for us to know what Jesus thought about John the Baptist. What was his description of him? What was his evaluation of John? And let me just read it for you. It's in Luke chapter 7 and verse 30, or 28. He says, For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. There wasn't a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Now think about that statement for a moment. That includes Elijah. That includes Elisha. That includes every prophet that ever came before. The miracles that many of them did is astounding. And yet, John did none. There wasn't one miracle that John the Baptist did other than prepare the way for the Messiah. What a privilege that was for him. Jesus looked up to him. Jesus admired him, for lack of a better description, in saying that he was the greatest of prophets. Not because it wasn't true, but because it was true. Because he was the one who paved the way. So Jesus had a pretty high esteem, is all I'm trying to say, of of John the Baptist. And as you know, John had gotten himself into a bit of a bind with Herod. Remember that? And Herodias. Why? Because he dared to point out their sin. You know, he was living with his sister-in-law. I mean, this crazy stuff was going on, and he called him out, got him in trouble, got him thrown in prison. And while he was there, he started to doubt. And, you know, there's people, I had a guy ask me the other day, you know, do I think it was a problem if a person doubted? There's been all kinds of people who have found themselves in the face of adversity and found themselves doubting. Doubting. Maybe I was wrong. And that's where John came. He got to that point. It's hard to imagine because Jesus said he was the greatest prophet that had ever lived. And a prophet is one, as you know, who speaks for God who had the anointing of the Holy Spirit on their life. God had given them specifically the Holy Ghost 
because the Holy Ghost was not yet poured out as it was at Pentecost, so it was given sparingly only to few. And so here's a man of God who was the greatest prophet that ever lived, who simply was doing what was right, got himself in trouble, found himself in prison, and found himself in the pit of despair. And he doubted. We find this narrative in Luke chapter 7, verses 19 through 23. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'm going to read it for you. In verse 19, it says, And John, calling unto two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come? Or look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist hath said, sent us to thee, saying, Art thou he that should come? Or look we for another? And in the same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, and go tell John. What things you have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. To the poor the gospel is preached, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Hmm. You see, John's question to Jesus during his time of doubt was, are you the one? Are you it? Well, he certainly had known it before. Surely John had seen the miracles that Jesus had done. Remember from the time of his baptism that John had done. John, remember at his baptism, even acknowledged that Jesus, he's going, why, why would you be baptized? You should be baptizing me because John's baptism was a baptism unto repentance from sin. Jesus knew no sin. He didn't need to repent. Jesus said, behoove it, behoove it to be so, for so fulfills the will of God. But John acknowledged his righteousness, that, that Jesus' righteousness surpassed anybody's. He knew that. He saw it. And yet, at this moment, he was in doubt. So he was asking, are you the one? He wanted to be reassured. So Jesus pointed out the things that he did that proved who he was. He was indeed the one that should come, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So Jesus' purpose in coming to this earth, God as God incarnate, was to set men free. To deliver those who were in bondage to sin. He came as one who was under the law, remember we read, to redeem those who were under the law. Thus, there in Luke chapter 2, Jesus as an infant submitted himself to the rite of circumcision, signifying that he identified with sinners and would live out his entire life willingly. And a lot of Gentiles don't understand this, but let me see if I can break it down for you, how important circumcision is to a Jew. 
especially at that time. It was important because it was symbolic. But it had two symbols. One, it said that you were subjecting yourself and your children, because it was the, the women who would, and the, and, the, and the father who would take them to the temple to be circumcised by the priest. They do that to this day. They just don't go to the temple. They go to the synagogue. And the priest still does it. Okay. But the symbolism is I'm under the law. I am subjecting myself to the law of God. But there's another side to it. And this is the scary part. Because the skin, if you remember when Zipporah cut off the skin of her son because Moses hadn't done it, she cast it at his feet. Remember that? And she said, a bloody husband thou art to me because of the circumcision. In the casting away of the foreskin is a symbol to the Jew that when he is circumcised, what he is basically saying or what his parents are saying for him is that if he doesn't keep the law, then he will be cut off from God. That's how important that is. Gentiles don't get that sometimes. But I want you to understand it as we go forward in our sermon today. That's important that you know that that you understand that, that this is what Paul was dealing with. That's why the issue of circumcision becomes such an important thing here when we get to our text. Jesus submitted himself to it because even as an infant, he would in his life be able to fulfill it. He would live out his entire life willingly, graciously under the law, faithfully fulfilling all 613 in order for those who would put their faith and trust in him that they might receive his imputation of his righteousness. And we know what the word righteousness means. It means to do what is right according to the law. Because sin is what? The Bible tells us very clearly. Sin is the breaking of the law. It's the missing of the mark is what it means. It's the breaking of the law. But Christ subjected himself to circumcision. There was no chance that he would ever be cast out because being God, he was the one who demanded it and he would be the one who fulfilled it perfectly. Thus, in the gospel, Jesus would speak about this freedom that he was bringing to us. Very important freedom. And there in John chapter 8, verse 34 through 36, he says, Jesus answered him and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Now think about that one, my friends. I'm not going to ask for hands because I already know that everyone would go up if I said, how many of us have ever committed a sin? Thus, Jesus said, if you have committed a sin, you are the servant of it. Ouch. But it goes on, and it gets better. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abides forever. And if the son, therefore, shall make you free from sin, you shall be free indeed. I love the fact that Christ is still setting people free. He sets us free from sin. He sets us free from everything. 
So often today in the, in, in, in the, in the church of Jesus Christ, we have given into culture and into the world's wisdom. And we have churches that now, of course, embrace, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever the next 12-step program is. They, they, they have all these programs. There's a guy out there by the name of Mike McIntosh. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor in, in uh, San Diego, California. Many years ago, and, and I remember I was on there, we was on a list server, and, and there's hundreds of us pastors that were on this list server. And it was a great place for pastors to gather online because it was private and you could talk amongst each other and kind of lay your problems and maybe an older pastor could give you advice or whatever. And the issue of psychology had come up. How some people were, you know, in bondage to things because of their psychology. And, and all of a sudden, I had never seen him post anything, but evidently Mr. McIntosh, Brother Tosh, was on there that day. And the rebuke that came out of him was so timely and so needed. He said, let me tell you something, brothers. Now, if you've never read Mike McIntosh's story, this is a man who was schizophrenic. He had lots of mental ill issues at the time. He was certifiably nuts. That's his words, not mine. He said, but one night, he said, I walked into this little tiny chapel in California, a little white country church. And I went up and I went to the cross of Jesus Christ. And God healed me. And God delivered me. And God gave me new life. And he set my feet on a solid rock. And I don't need the psychologist. I don't need anything. Give me Jesus because he's the one who heals. He's the one who sets free. Well, brother, he's still doing it today. Nothing has changed. Therefore, if the Son hath made you free, you, my friend, are free indeed. I don't care how long you were an alcoholic. If Jesus has set you free from that, you do not lo no longer have to stand up and go, Hi, my name's Doug. I'm an alcoholic, even though I haven't tasted you know, alcohol in 10 years. No, you're not. Are you in Christ? You're a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. If the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. I still believe that, gang. I hope you do. Else what are we preaching? Christ is still doing it. Freedom. He gives it. He offers it to those who will accept it. Jesus is the one who has to make you free, though. Make no mistake about it. Oh, you can reform. I'm not saying that people don't reform. Oh, AA, listen to me. If you're part of it, don't get mad at me. Let me just challenge you. Or whatever that addiction program is you're attached to. I'm not saying that you can't quit doing something. My gosh, I've quit eating for a long time and lost 100 pounds. Evidently, I went back. And I've done that several times. And it happens with those who drink and it happens with those who do drugs and it happens. But I've never met a man who was, tells me that he was delivered by Jesus Christ. I've never met one yet who, who genuinely has went back. I never have. 
Maybe, I, maybe they're there, but I've never met them. Because if the Son has made you free, you're free indeed. Because you no longer identify with it. The problem with some people is they're still identifying with it. You understand what I'm saying? If you keep identifying as a sinner, what are you going to see? You're going to see your sin. Listen, my identity is in Jesus Christ. The life that I now live, Paul said, I live by the power of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, I know I make mistakes, and some of them are even worse than mistakes. I've done it. I've reaped what I've sown. So have you. But thank God, I am able to say, blessed is the man, happy is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity because of what Jesus has done. Because if the Son has made you free, you're free indeed. Prior to Jesus' incarnation, man had tried his hardest to have a relationship with God based on his own merit, his own goodness, or at the bare minimum, his good college try to do what's right. I can tell you nothing's changed. They're still doing it. I can prove it. One of the techniques that I use when I'm witnessing to people, I use many, but one of them, is I have two simple questions I like to ask. The first one that I ask is, if you were to die tonight, are you sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you would go to heaven? And most of the time people will say, well, I'm not absolutely sure, but you know, I'm hoping. And then I followed up with a second question. Well, in light of that, if you were to die tonight and found yourself standing before the Lord, and the Lord said, why should I allow you into my heaven? What would you say? And many times, I've heard people say, well, I I did my best to be good. I did my best. I heard a lady tell me one time, she says, well, the way I believe, which always scares me when people say, well, what I believe, is that, you know, there's this big scale in heaven. And God's going to weigh my bad stuff that I did against the good stuff that I did. I said, you better hope not. (laughs) But see, the problem is she was banking on her own merit. She's banking on some goodness that she had. The problem is the Bible has a very different thing to say about that. There is no giant scale in heaven. Like I said, the problem with those particular type of answers is you can only get into heaven by being perfect. So you're either going to be perfect by your own merit or you're going to have to be perfect by the merit of someone else. Now if you think, whether you're sitting here or listening to me some other way, that maybe you've mustered up a little bit of goodness. Maybe you're going to convince the Lord when you get there. Let's just take a look real quick at what the Lord says about your goodness. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. And here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Gang, the word none means what? None. There's none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. How many people understand? None. 
There is none that seeketh after God. Well, there goes every seeker-friendly church in the United States and the world. I always thought that was interesting. I had a kid come to the church one time when I was in Zanesville. And I started talking to him about the Lord. He goes, well, I'm, I'm a seeker, brother. I said, no, you're not. Well, you're the exception? He goes, oh, what do you mean? Because I evidently startled him a little bit. I said, the Bible says there's none that seeketh after God. Oh, you must be the exception. You're a seeker. No, you're not. You're seeking something, but evidently it ain't Jesus. Because if you're seeking Jesus, well, that's a whole other thing. But even the Bible says you don't do it. If, if you're seeking, it's because God opened your eyes to it. God has opened your eyes to your need for the Savior. But there's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. There is, uh, they are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. That's what God thinks about man's righteousness. And that includes us all. So you see, my friends, God doesn't think very much of our righteousness. In fact, the Bible goes on and tells us our righteousness is like filthy rags, and I won't go into a dissertation of what that actually means. But it isn't good. Filthy rags. So, in order to get into heaven, you either have to do it on your own merit or on the merit of someone else. And God's already told you what he thinks about your merit. It doesn't work. So it has to be on the merit of someone who is greater than you. Someone who is greater than all of us. Someone who is able to do for you what you could not do for yourself. And of course, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law all the way, through his whole life, perfectly. From his birth, a lamb born without spot or blemish, as we've studied the last few weeks. Oh, man. He then shed his blood on the cross of Calvary that he might purchase you and redeem you from the wages of sin, which is death and eternal damnation. So Jesus' ministry was a ministry of grace and truth. The Bible says that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ because he was the anointed one. The signs of the anointed one followed him everywhere he went, which is what he told the disciples to go tell John. I love that story. There's a great song that says, Go tell John. And you know what? Sometimes in your life you need somebody to come and tell you the good things that the Lord has done because you're going to find yourself in the pit of despair now and then. It will happen. And you might begin to doubt. Well, John doubted. But Jesus reassured him. So we go back and we look at the things that Christ has done on our behalf to be reassured that he was the one who he said that he was. But wherever freedom rings, and Jesus said, if the Son's made you free, you're free indeed. But wherever freedom rings, wherever it is preached, there's always going to be somebody who is trying to hinder that. There's always going to be opposition to freedom. You know, Paul said he was afraid 
after he would leave that grievous wolves would creep in and bring people into bondage again and remove them from the simplicity that was in Jesus. He said they would be preaching another gospel, which is not another gospel, but there are some who would injure you. They, they want to hurt you. They want to bring you into bondage. Thus, they want to claim the grace of God. And at the same time, they were seeking to bring themselves under the law by making them be circumcised there in Galatians, which is a symbol of the subjection to the law. They wanted these guys to say, yes, we'll keep the law, realizing that the act of circumcision had two meanings. Not only were they being put under the law, but if they didn't keep it, then they would be cut off from God. So it was an all or nothing. Paul here in Galatians 5 began to use some strong language that he really doesn't use anywhere else in dealing with people who try to mix works and grace. He comes against it very strongly. Hmm. When Paul drew out from the text, it's either one way or the other. Sometimes people don't like it. But you can't have it both ways. Thus he says in the beginning of chapter 5 there, he says, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, because he says that, gang, he's telling you that it's a choice. You have a choice. Stand fast in the liberty. Choose liberty. That's what he's telling you. And don't be tangled again with bondage. Don't put yourself under a yoke that you cannot bear. You remember when Peter went to Jerusalem and they had a question on whether or not the Gentiles should keep the law. And what did what did they say? They said, let us not put any burden upon the Gentiles that neither we or our forefathers could bear. They knew they couldn't do it. And why would you want to put other people under that? But yet they did. Look at verse 2 there in, in Galatians 5. He says, for behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now Paul says, I, Paul, say unto you. Well, they, they knew who was writing to them, and he's five chapters in. What he's doing is he's exerting his apostolic authority. He's telling them, I, Paul, say unto you, if you be circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. It's a powerful statement that he's trying to give them because he's given them a stark warning. He couldn't be more serious about what he's saying. If you're circumcised, that is, if you're doing it ritualistic to be in favor with God, he says, Christ will profit you nothing. Wow, think about that statement for a moment. That means everything that Jesus did on behalf of mankind will profit that person nothing. They will not be able to enjoy that at all because now they're going to be under the bondage of keeping the law. Now, these guys, these Christians, and keep it in mind, that's what we're dealing with here, Christians who were being tempted, who were being enticed, bewitched, as Paul said back in chapter 3, to forsake the grace of God and, or, or to just add to it. He wasn't telling them to just give up the grace of God. He was saying, you need something plus. It's, it's the grace of God plus something, you see. And so often, I've always asked Christians, it's like when you're talking to somebody, when were you born again? And a lot of times what people will point to 
unlike a Jew, the Gentiles now, what they'll point to is their baptism. Well, I was baptized. I didn't ask you when you were dipped. I asked you, when were you born again? When did you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Because I can tell you on the authority of scriptures, my friend, I've baptized more people than I can count in the 40 years I've been a minister, but I've always told every one of them the same thing. And I'll repeat it today. If you are not born again and I dunk you in the water in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost, if you weren't saved going under, you ain't coming up nothing but a wet sinner. That's all that's going to happen. You must be born again. It's important. So it's just like circumcision. You can't mix grace and works. Now, baptism is important, but it has no salvational importance. There's people today who practice circumcision for a totally hygienic thing. It's a custom. That's okay. That's not what Paul's talking about here. What he's talking about is those who do things in order to have favor or to be right with God. And there he warns them, don't do it. There's a movement today in many denominations that is the exact antithesis of what Paul's rebuking here. Now, they're not saying mixing grace and works. What they're saying is mixing liberty and sin. It's just the exact opposite, but the results are the same. So they're telling you, oh, yeah. Well, just like Paul said, there would come many saying, because we say grace abounds, let us sin. It doesn't matter that God has condemned homosexuality. That doesn't matter, bro. Come on. Be inclusive. We want to include everybody. I had a guy tell me one time years ago before this was even an issue, but I pointed it out to him. It was one of the stupidest things I'd ever heard. He says, well, brother, when I hear you preach, you draw a line. You draw a line. He said, I'd rather draw a circle and count everybody in. I said, oh, that sounds so sweet. That sounds, oh, you're so much more compassionate than somebody who would tell the truth. Because Jesus, my friend, drew a line. Jesus even told his own people, you're either for me or you are against me. There's no middle ground. You're either standing on Jesus Christ and his word or you're not. Why does God take such a hard stand? Because he loves you. It's not a lack of love to tell somebody the truth of the gospel, my friends. It is the love of God. When somebody comes to you and says, no, that's not right. Here's what the Word of God says. But there's that movement. And so Paul is fighting against those type of movements. Why? Because it leads to a place that you don't want to go. Paul dealt with this stuff early. Throughout church history, as I said when I started, there's many examples of people using liberty as a cloak of maliciousness. I've told you in times past that at the turn of the century, there was huge cults that rose up in America that were sex cults based on the liberty of God, which is absolute craziness that anybody would believe that you can do that. But my point is that whether or not you mix grace and works or whether it is liberty and sin, the result is the same. What you're doing is diminishing the work of Christ. And it's like a guy who falls from the 8th floor of a building or the 85th floor. The result will be the same. And it leads to death. 
There's an old song, or an old saying, really, among uh, musicians, that practice makes perfect. There's another one that's kind of like that. Repetition makes remembrance. And so Paul goes on, and he uses this repetition. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, for I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Remember in James, James said if you walk in one part of it or you stumble in one part of it, you stumble in it all. So it's all or nothing. Once again, remember the way the Jews saw circumcision. They saw it as placing themselves under the law and that if they didn't keep it, which James says if you stumble in one point, you don't keep any of it. If they didn't keep it, they were cut off from God. Pretty harsh. But the beauty of it is that that's what Jesus did. Jesus not only subjected himself to it, but he kept it perfectly according to what God had demanded. And he did that for you if you'll receive it. Paul's warning these guys, don't, get, don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. Don't try it. Don't try to come to God on your own merit. Jesus even said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. He even said in another place in the gospel that if any man tries to climb up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. You can hear the intensity with which Paul is speaking. And he's speaking to these men who had given in to these Judaizers, to these legalists, who had tempted them to place themselves back under the law of God, to mix grace and works that they might have some sort of a better standing with God. They gave in to it. Just like many people today, my friends, who are giving in to the heresy of inclusion, the heresy of mixing liberty and sin. They're being enticed. Oh, it has an air of wisdom, worldly wisdom, but it all leads to the same place. Paul said here that because they had allowed themselves to be enticed, to be bewitched, bewitched into this particular heresy, Christ had become of no effect unto them. See, there is what I call, and it's what I've named this sermon, the Jesus effect. Everything Jesus did, from the moment of his birth, as we've studied these last few weeks, as a baby, all the fulfillment of prophecy that it took for that to happen, 400, over 400, just for him coming the first time. Perfectly fulfilled. And then through his life and his ministry and all the things that he's done on your behalf. Wow. The vicariousness of Christ, the effect of what he did on those that believe. When God calls a man, the Bible tells us very clearly that to every person is given the measure of faith. It's not God's will that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so God even gives you that amount of faith that it takes to open your eyes for your need for him. So he's done it all for you. None of us can boast in anything. In fact, Paul even asked the question, where is boasting? It's excluded, he said. Why? Because you had nothing to do with it. Jesus did it all. And he's still doing it. I love the fact that when you read the scriptures, there's this sense that we are saved, but there's this sense that we are being saved, 
And there's the sense that we will be saved. Well, what does that tell me? Well, that tells me that Jesus Christ is still at the right hand of the Father making intercession for me. And his blood, as the first John says, continually cleanses me from sin. So even though it's a done deal because I've placed my faith and I'm trusting in all that Jesus Christ has done, not in my own works or merit, but because Christ is at work even today, it's not like he stopped. He's still doing it. He's still on your behalf become your advocate before the Father. And so it's still working. He's still working and, and, and pleading on your behalf. What Paul was warning against are those who are counting on their own merit plus the grace of God. The problem is that to have a partial Christ, to have partial Jesus is to have no Jesus at all. And that's what Paul says. So Paul gave them this warning. Those who think that they have something that they can do. In this particular case, of course, it was circumcision, but you can add whatever you want to that if you think that it's something that you're doing that's going to emphasize your salvation that you already have freely through grace, you're mistaken. And if you have doing that, he says Jesus is of no effect to you. Wow. All that Jesus did on your behalf will be of no profit. Hmm. In fact, before I close, Paul said that these guys, he's going to go on to say, he said, you did run well. You were doing it. You were walking in grace. What hindered you? What hindered you? Pride hindered them. Pride. Pride. And the stupid so-called wisdom of somebody that they trusted instead of trusting solely in the word of God. Here's the question. What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in this morning? Are you trusting solely in all that Jesus Christ did? Are you clinging solely to what the finished work that Jesus did on your behalf? Is that what you're clinging to? Or are you clinging to something else, something plus? It's a genuine question that we need to ask. It's like asking a person, when were you born again? That's not a trick question. It's not even obscene. It's legit. Every one of us should be able to give an answer to every man who asks us of the hope that lies in us. We should. We need to. Paul warned the Galatians, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherein Christ has set you free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Stand fast. Liberty isn't free, my friends. Freedom's never free. It cost our Lord and Savior everything. Thus we preach. Thus we encourage men. Thus we plead with every person. Be reconciled to God. Trust wholly in what Jesus Christ has done. Cling only to his finished work. Because you need to be sure when God calls you home. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. And Father, though it seems like a no-brainer to so many, yet 
We know that there are those, Father, who struggle with their surety of their salvation in you. And maybe the reason, Lord, is because somewhere in the back of their mind, they're, they're counting on their own merit, that maybe something that they've done or whatever, and, and Lord, so it causes them to be unsure. But Father, we ask that you would reassure them that you would open their eyes to that if, if that's the case. I pray for those, Lord Father, who hear this message and regardless of where they're at and what time. Listen to me, my friend. It doesn't take a, a, a prophet to look around and see that time is short. It doesn't take a prophet to see the, the state of the world. And that if you're a historian, if you've read any history at all, you know that you're living at a time that is extremely extraordinary. But it's also a, a time of opportunity to be ready when the Lord calls and when the Lord returns. I would encourage you this morning that if that's the case, that you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, trusting solely and only in his life in his finished work on the cross, in his resurrection, and the fact that he stands at the right hand of the Father making intercession for each and every one of us. And don't wait, my friend. Start this new year off right. Do it today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, praise the Lord, gang. Uh